Thank you. Good morning. Glad to see you here this morning. Glad to be here this morning to celebrate the goodness of God's grace in Christ. The text we just read, the angel says, I bring you good news of great joy. I wonder whose joy he's talking about. The shepherds were afraid. Now, Mary and Joseph, I suppose they had a certain sort of joy in the arrival of a baby. That's a joyful experience in the end. Whose joy are the angels announcing? I think it's the joy of the Lord. But it's joy in general. <laughs> it's good news of great joy. The Thank you. He goes on to say, for unto you is born this day. Born. Now, the birth of Christ, birth of Jesus, let's say, It's, it's not even as good as an ordinary birth in that day, given where it happens. And the people that experience it, Mary and Joseph, there's nothing momentous about these two people. Well, except this. They are ordinary beyond ordinary these two people they are not famous wealthy important powerful not even a little you remember how the story begins Caesar that's where the story begins. Caesar Augustus, the very name means important. And if you were to ask who's the most powerful man in human society at that time, you'd have to name that guy, I think. Caesar Augustus decreed something and Joseph obeyed. Who's ordering who? Joseph is not a powerful man. He's going to register in his hometown 
to pay taxes to a foreign occupying power. Then you got to stop and think about who this announcement is being made to, an angelic announcement. Shepherds in the field at night. Hired farmhands. These are not important people. These people stink, literally. If one of them showed up at your door, you would not want to let him in the house. These are not important people. And of course, when this angel appears to them out of the blue sky or the black sky, they are scared to death, as would you be. And the angel says, don't be afraid. I'm, I doubt if that worked. Don't be afraid. Why? Because I have good news of great joy. That unto you is born today in the city of David born a savior Christ now that word now that's the word Christ is a translated word of the word that Hebrews would recognize which is Messiah anointed one the one the one anticipated by all of the prophets of the Old Testament. In fact, the one anticipated all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, where the Lord says to the serpent, he will crush your head. That one, good news of great joy, that one is born today. Christ, the Lord. Now, in this context, when someone says the Lord, they mean God Almighty. That, I think, is the biggest of all the news in this announcement. The Lord. God is one of us today. Today, the Lord is born. How's that even possible? How is it that God Almighty can be made one of us? That tells you something about what we are 
goes back to Genesis as well. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And Jesus himself is described as not just made in the likeness of God, but he is the image of God. So if you want to know what the model was when we were built, it's him. He is perfect man and entire God in one person. Well, that is good news. Good news of great joy. Born to you, born this day in the city of David, a Savior. You know, it's not necessarily good news to me and you if God is with us if he is not our savior. Normally, the expectation we should have if God is with us is that expectation that Isaiah had in Isaiah chapter 6 when he found himself suddenly in the presence of Almighty God and he said, get me out of here. He was stricken with terror. He said, woe to me. For I am a man of unclean lips, this is the prophet, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and I cannot stand in the presence of a holy, righteous God. Get me out of here. And if God is with us, that is how we should respond. Unless he is our savior. And then it is good news of great joy. See, Jesus was born that day, and he was born that day to die a few years later and to pay the penalty, having lived a perfectly righteous life in every last moment and detail. He lived in perfect obedience to his Father, Almighty God the Father, he is Almighty God the Son, and so he always walks in perfect trust of God the Father and in perfect communion with God in the Spirit. Scripture says God gave him the Spirit without measure. This man, this one of us, lived that perfectly righteous life and then died, which is not supposed to happen to people who live perfectly righteous lives and died as a substitute for my sin and yours. And so, paid the penalty for my sin and for yours if you have put your faith in the payment. That is the good news of great joy. I rebelled against God. I was God's enemy. And in the sacrifice of this child, I am restored to fellowship with the living God and in that restored 
to life. That is good news. That good news <clears throat> is the mission of the church. That good news is the mission of this church and any church that knows it. It is the very nature of good news that it is news and so to be announced. Just as this angel said, don't be afraid. We are called into the world to say, don't be afraid, I've got good news. You should be afraid, you should be scared to death that you might die at any moment apart from God. You should be terrified, but you are not because you're blinded, incapable of seeing the good news as good news. And so we come and we make this great announcement. And while we're coming, we are praying our heads off that the Spirit of God would do that miraculous work in your heart and mind so that you will see the truth of it and trust in it. That's our mission, to announce and pray. Here's some things that are not our mission. To do a bunch of good deeds that have nothing to do with announcing and praying. Here's something else that's not our mission, your personal development. Sorry. Now here's the thing. If our mission is to announce the good news and to pray for the people who need to see it, including each other, because we need to see it every day. If that is our mission, we're going to need to do some personal development in our membership. But that personal development is not our mission. I'm not here to make you a better you. I am here to tell you that Christ is all you need and that you desperately need Christ. No matter how good a version of you you become. And I expect in following Christ, you will experience a transformation in your life. The Holy Spirit of God, for heaven's sake, dwells in you, so I expect things to change and you to become better, but that isn't the goal here. And our goal is not to do a lot of good deeds, charitable works. You know, we have a benevolence fund, and every month we give little baskets of food to people who need it, and that is a good thing to do. It's, it's a good thing, but it is not our mission. Our mission is not a mission of moral reform, though we expect moral reform when people see Christ for who he is. I expect that when someone 
understands the nature of Jesus Christ, that person will change. But that change is not our mission. The announcement of the gospel, prayer for the people who need to see it, is our mission. Because our goal and the Lord's goal is the glorification of his own grace. This is in Ephesians chapter 2, where our very salvation, it says, is for the praise of his glory. For the praise of the glory of his grace. Now, I'm talking about our mission because we're in this series where that's included. Our mission is the announcement of the good news. The enjoyment of the good news together in the body of Christ. That's our mission. To be the good news people. To be the children of our Father, Abba. To look to Him, to trust in Him. This is all being the good news family. And then we noticed last time that that is, uh, in that mission, each of us is called to some sort of joyful service. Not just service. Joyful service. Even the service of the Lord in the sacrifice of the cross was a joyful service. The scripture says this, I think, because if it didn't say it, we'd never come to understand it. It wouldn't, we could not fathom it if it wasn't explicitly stated. But the Bible says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And he says in John chapter 17, in that great prayer, so that your joy, so that we would experience his joy, and experience it fully. The gospel community, the church of Jesus Christ, is supposed to be a place of great celebration and joy. And if the whole thing is about good news, you can see why that would be true. Well, of course it is. We're the people who've gotten good news. Good news of great joy. And so we are each one called to serve joyfully. So I don't want you to serve unless you want to. So I am not going to be one of those pastors that is nagging you to serve. I hope. but one that gives you opportunity to serve because it's an opportunity for joy. <clears throat> now, this brings us to today's lesson. <laughs> and that is that we serve together. That joyful service 
necessarily involves a certain amount of cooperation. And that what God is building is not a bunch of good servants, but a community of good servants, a body representing his own son. Joyful service involves cooperation, and God's instrument for joyful service is the local church. The local church. Not the church, the local church. Now, those two things are not like completely distinguishable, just to be clear, or not so clear, I don't know. But the, the point is, when it comes to the coordination of our joyful service, you need a local church. I hope that will be clear to you before we're done. The local church is a church administered by elders. Elders in the faith, men who have demonstrated their maturity in Christ and their ability to shepherd others. Those elders are in a local church. And they're called to shepherd the people of that church, not the church down the street. So uh, if you have a Bible, you could look at 1 Peter chapter 5, for example. Where Peter writes, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. That's a little gospel. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. That could be translated around you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in charge, in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. There's a similar reference in Hebrews chapter 13, where uh, the writer of Hebrews exhorts the church. Verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. 
There's a clear instruction in the scriptures that in a local church, elders are, they do what the biblical word is, rule. They make decisions. They coordinate the members of the body in their joyful service. And there's a, a there's two corresponding uh, admonitions, one to those elders and one to those who submit to those elders in the local body. Joy. As an elder in this church, I am to look out, not just for your service, but for your joyful service. I am not called, it says in, in, in 1 Peter, to rule over you but to provide an example. An example of what? Joyful service. And here in Hebrews, those who are called to submit to elders are called to do so in a way that cares for the joy of those elders. It doesn't do good for the gospel. For us, for our claim to be the good news people, if we are grumpy. If we serve under compulsion, as the scripture says. If we are not demonstrating what Jesus said, come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest, not harder work. Or what John says in 1 John, his commandments are not burdensome. The local church is administered by elders in the faith, men who have demonstrated their maturity in Christ and their ability to shepherd others, men who you could point to and say, follow him, you'll, go, you'll be following Christ. because he's following Christ. Not because there's something particularly special about him. Now, the main duty of these elders is in this passage in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, which continues, really, it's the theme of the whole book of 2 Timothy. The whole book of 2 Timothy is aimed at this. In chapter 1, verse 13, 2 Timothy, we read this. This is Paul's exhortation to Timothy. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the holy spirit who guards within who dwells within us guard the good deposit entrusted to you Timothy what is this good deposit it's the good news that's it and he's saying look 
You need to follow the pattern of sound words. You need to know the gospel. It's a communication of words. It's a message that we announce. And you need to announce it correctly and clearly. And you need to guard. That's an interesting word. You know, that's what those shepherds were doing on the hill that night. They were guarding their sheep. Same word. Shepherds were watching. Here he's saying, watch. Like a shepherd watches his sheep at night. Take care. Diligently look after the sound words, the deposit, that good deposit that's entrusted to you so that when you pass this message to someone, it is the message. And he says in chapter 2, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You see, what we're doing in the church is we are maintaining the sound biblical gospel so that when we tell it to someone, the gospel is in fact what they hear and not something else. There's actually, in that text, there's four generations. There's Paul. He said, and Paul says to Timothy, what you've heard from me, or with Timothy, he says, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others. In other words, Paul is concerned about whether the gospel that he preaches will be the gospel four generations down from him. And so we're concerned. (laughs) We want to teach you the gospel so that when you communicate it, the people you communicate it to will be able to communicate it correctly to someone else. Oh, well, that takes a good deal of theological care. So our first duty as elders is to watch after the message of the church and to maintain the church's faithfulness to the gospel. That's the main thing. And in our joyful service together, that's the main thing. It's something we do together. What God is doing in the church is building a community, a communion, a body, not just a bunch of good individual believers, but a community of believers that are together and require each other. And so we come to that part of this that's in Ephesians chapter 4.
And we're going to start in verse 11. And again, I would say to you, this passage is a sort of capsulization of the message of the whole book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians is about the church, the body of Christ. We tend to read it in the modern age, at least, as though it was written to each of us, but it was not. It was written to the group of us, the church. Anyway, in verse 11, he says this, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints. Now, shepherds and teachers, those are pastors and elders. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Wow. So that we may no longer be children tossed around to and fro by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. From what the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow, makes the body grow, so that it builds itself up in love. Elders oversee the joyful service of Christians in a local church, helping them develop gifts into skills, identifying their opportunities to serve, teaching them the word of God, providing examples of love, faith, and service, and making the necessary organizational decisions. And what you see in this passage is not the development of individuals, except as that contributes to the development of the one new man, the body. And so there is a development of individuals. It says here, he gave shepherds and teachers to equip the saints. So elders in the church are called to equip everyone else. For what? Joyful service. The work of ministry. For anything and everything that might contribute to the gospel life of the body of Christ. Equip the saints for works of service. Now, are, we, are you supposed to do a work of service because that's good for you? Well, I think if it's going to be joyful, then it probably ought to be good for you. But you can also take joy in the development of the community. And that is the actual goal here. You see, it says, equip the saints for work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. So we equip you, you serve, and the service together builds up the whole thing. That's, that's the ultimate goal here. 
He says it again at the end. Each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. It's not about your development. It's about your development for the development of the whole thing. And then it says, until... Okay, so we might say, so how long do we keep doing this? Well, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Until all the Christians are Christians. That's one way of saying that. Until all those who are called of God to trust in Christ have trusted in Christ. That's how long. Until the body is built. So, we continue. We equip the saints. The saints do works of service. This builds up the body until the body is built. The unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of Man, or the Son of God. And then he says, to a mature man. Not a bunch of mature men. You see, the goal is not just that you would be perfected in the image of Christ. The goal is that we together would become perfected in the image of Christ. The image of Christ is represented in the world not by me and you and you and you and you, but by us as a thing. Now, I've given this illustration a thousand times, but I have to give it again because I think it's good. Suppose you were walking down the road out here and you saw lying on the ground a finger. Not the whole person, just the finger. Let's say it was my finger. Let's not worry about how it came to be separated from me. There are some things you could figure out. You could figure out that is my finger. Because everyone's fingers identify who they belong to. You could do it a number of different ways nowadays. You could look at the fingerprint, you could look at the DNA. And you could tell that is a perfect finger of Doug. It is absolutely Doug-like as a finger. It can't be anyone else's finger. It's only mine. And you can tell by looking at it that it is mine. It is absolutely 100% identified with me. But here's what you can't tell anything about me. Other than I'm missing a finger. You can't tell what my personality is like. You can't even know what I look like, except in the part that you can see in my finger. And what the scripture teaches about the body of Christ is that it is a body. And that the representation of Christ in the world is in the church. Primarily, not just the individual Christian. Now it could be 
That when you're in your office, you're the only Christian there, and you're the only representation of Christ available to those people at that time, and that's right. But if you don't take us with you, you will not be adequate to that task. If the church isn't with you, even when you're not with the church, you're going to have a hard time as a witness, as an example, as a demonstration of God's grace. It's as simple as this. Every Sunday I need to come in here and remember the sacrifice of Christ, the gospel that saves me, the gospel that is saving me, the gospel that will save me in the end. To remember that I am secure in the hand of God because of the work of Christ, not because of anything about me. I didn't give it to myself. I don't maintain it for myself. It is a gift from him. It is secure because his word says so. And it is based entirely in the work of Christ on the cross, validated by his resurrection and guaranteed by his ascension and intercession so that even this morning, if I have done wrong, Jesus is standing between me and the wrath of God for my sin. That good news is everything. It's at the heart of everything. It's the goal of everything. It's the beginning and it's the end. It is all about together we represent him. So <laughs> the book of Ephesians actually describes the church as the fullness of Christ. It's here in this text, kind of subtly, but in chapter 1, it concludes, chapter 1, concludes with this verse, and he, God, put all things under his, the son's feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church. Who is Christ given to in the book of Ephesians? The church. Now get this gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills all in all. And so Christ fills us, <laughs> us, fills all in all. He fills you in me, me, in you, us, in one another. We have the Spirit, each of us, and us. The Spirit dwells in the individual Christian and in the body of Christians together so that we operate as one person. And that person is Christ. This is... High, high, high. It is beyond our resources and means and abilities. If it happens, it's a miracle of the Spirit of God in our life together in the church. So, we're the people who pray. The local church 
Here's the last thing. And this whole series has been about how do we here in this church envision the Christian life? And we want to give it in, you know, eight easy lessons. How do we envision the Christian life? And, you know, here's something we haven't talked about much along the way, and that is, uh, what should you do? Oh, well, that's fitting, because the Christian life isn't at all about what you do. Unless what you do is trust in what he did. It's all about turning what you do upside down. So we did have, along the way, we gave you a little plan for reading the Bible because you have a Bible. Not because you have to read your Bible to stay in with God. You don't. You just don't. I mean, for most of the history of the church, people didn't even have copies of the Bible. It was impossible for you to read a Bible. But now it's possible, so what on earth? Why don't you? It's an opportunity, not a demand. All of the commandments of God have been transformed from demands to opportunities if you are in Christ. All of them. That's why last week when we were talking about joyful service, I kept on saying, what will you do now that you don't have to do a single thing? And it is, in fact, the power of not having to do it that enables you to do it. It is because God operates in your life with grace that you can now actually obey, and we can obey together. And that is the point today. It's something we do together. And in the mission of the church and in the coordination of the local church, here's the ultimate, ultimate. We replicate the church somewhere else. Here's what we think, that this is the goal of the individual Christian, to be a reproductive Christian, and certainly, of course. You want to bear witness of the gospel. You want to see people come to faith, individual people. That's right. But we want to see a whole nother one of these somewhere else. You, if you ask the Bible, what is God's program for evangelizing, for getting this good news out all over the world? The answer is the church. The local church. And so we are a church that was planted by people who came here from somewhere else. And now there's a church here. And it is our goal that one day we will be come whatever is necessary for us to do that. To go from being a planted church to a planting church is our goal. Because we haven't really 
got that thing Paul was after when he said to Timothy, take what I have given you and give it to people who can give it to people you don't even know and do so faithfully. That's our goal. And so the question about the Christian life is a question each of us, I guess, has to address. But it's as simple as this. Do you see what your part is? Do you have some part you want because it should be joyful? I don't want you to do anything you don't want to do. It might take you a while to see that you want to do it, but okay, we'll give you all the time you need. Do you see your part? Do you understand what God has given to us by putting you in that chair you're sitting in right now? Because the scripture says it was God that did that. You thought you made a decision and you came here and that was entirely up to you, but the scripture says God has placed each one of us into the body just as he desires. Well, that's the uh, end of this little series <laughs> about the Christian life, the way we envision it here. I hope you're encouraged to play your part. And when I say play, I mean play. Not struggle, not endure, though there is some struggle and some enduring. But in the end, what we're doing is we are playing together in the goodness of God. Father, we give you thanks for the gospel message. Lord, we pray that we would, uh, by the work of the Spirit in our lives, by the work of the Word of God in our minds and hearts, that we would be faithful to this Word, the good news of our salvation in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.